Insurance companies are refusing to insure sea-related home damage. Emerald Lake in Yoho National Park may have all of its fish killed to stop the spread of a parasite. The federal government is scrambling to explain how a veteran of the SS was given a standing ovation in Parliament, and talks between Kosovo and Serbia might be over for good in their current form. Good morning. It's Monday, September 25th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. First, we start in Newfoundland, where folks there and along a lot of the coast with the Atlantic Ocean are marking one year since Hurricane Fiona caused significant damage. CBC's Malone Mullen has a report on how the insurance companies left people high and dry. Okay, I guess not dry, in the aftermath of the disaster. The piece takes a bit of an odd frame that there is a solution to the insurance companies refusing to insure people for flooding, and that solution isn't just forcing them to insure people for flooding. But the story is a fascinating look at how insurance is rapidly falling behind the pace of climate change-triggered destruction. The story starts out with Peggy Savory, a woman who, over many years, paid about $60,000 to insure her home. After Hurricane Fiona destroyed it, her insurance claims were denied. Quote-unquote, seawater-related damage wasn't included in her coverage. This came as a surprise and posed a big problem for Savory and others who live near different kinds of water specifically saying that they don't cover seawater and other kinds of water damage is a big problem for people who live near different kinds of water. I know folks in Nova Scotia are dealing with this too. Did the water that damaged your house come from the sea? Did it come from a storm surge? Did it come from an adjacent road that had runoff? Was it from a swelling river? The answer matters if your insurer is very specific about what kinds of water damage is allowed to be covered by your insurance. For example, water damage specifically from quote-unquote surges isn't covered by nearly any insurers at all reports Mullen which of course is super convenient for the insurance companies. Savory received nothing and that was also the case for another 102 households in Port of Basque and around it whose homes were destroyed by the storm. Insurance companies quote refused to pay out the damages for the storm unquote reports Mullen. Rather than interrogating the ethics of insurance companies refusing to insure things that are likely to cause damage or destroy a home, the story pivots to Ottawa, stepping in with a solution. Craig Stewart, a vice president of the Insurance Bureau of Canada, argues that insuring someone who lives on a floodplain or low-lying coastal community makes little sense. Quote, it's no longer an accident, he says, if they are flooded. Which is kind of curious, because if some of these homes have been there for decades and decades and decades, it's still, by definition, an accident. Mullen doesn't tell us whether or not the folks featured in the story from Porto Basque would be considered people living in a floodplain or, quote, low-lying coastal regions, unquote. And so the industry is asking Canada to underwrite these premiums. Then the reporting ends, or it goes back to Peggy Savory, who says this, quote, when you see the insurance companies raking in millions and billions of dollars and not paying out, it just doesn't seem fair that the government has to bail us out. When I say that the story ends there, I mean that there's nothing else about the insurance industry specifically. And Savory is right. Mullen doesn't actually mention how much money these companies make off of their customers, nor is there an examination of what kind of limits developers have placed on them to not develop land that is in a flood zone. 
After all, flood zones tend to be near water, and water features are always desirable for real estate. I think we need more answers about why taxpayers are on the hook for something that insurance companies probably should be. Or maybe it's time to get private insurance out of the industry altogether and have Canada underwrite everything. Next to Yoho National Park in British Columbia, Emerald Lake, it's feared, has the presence of something called whirling disease, an invasive parasite. Researchers are warning that every fish in the lake might need to be killed to try and stop the parasite from spreading. The parasite impacts trout and salmon. At this point, they only have an indication that it's quote-unquote likely present, and so researchers need to test further. As such, swimming, fishing, and all watercraft have been prohibited on the water to stop the parasite from potentially spreading. This isn't the first time that an entire fish population of a lake have been called to stop the whirling disease. In 2016, at Johnson Lake in Banff National Park, all of the fish were pulled from the lake and killed to try and get a handle on the parasite. The article from CBC's Shivani Joshi doesn't say where this parasite might have come from or what conditions might lead to its spreading. Back in 2017, the entire Bow River watershed had been infected with the disease which might explain why during an hour on the Bull River in a kayak last week, I didn't see a single fish. The National Park Service in the United States, which surveys the presence of whirling disease on trout in Yellowstone National Park, says that the disease likely came to North America through sales of frozen fish products. The disease was first described in Europe more than 100 years ago. Next, to national news and an apology from the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rota. Rota had invited Yaroslav Hunka to Ottawa to witness a speech made by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky when he said the 98-year-old was a veteran who fought Russia in the House of Commons, the anti-communist House of Commons jumped to their feet and gave Hunka a standing ovation. Very few media seem to notice anything strange about this, exposing how little any of them seem to know about who was fighting Russia during World War II. But the Associated Press did notice and named Hunka and the division that he had fought for, the 1st Ukrainian Division, also known as the Ukrainian Division of the SS-14 Waffer Division. Imagine poor Zelensky, the honored guest witnessing the House of Commons jump to their feet, showing hundreds of asses applauding a man who 70 years ago would have been trying to kill Zelensky's family. It didn't seem like this would become news. It was the weekend, after all, and aside from very online socialists, I didn't see anyone mention anything about it. But the Simon Wiesenthal Center spoke out. They demanded an apology to both Holocaust survivors and those who fought Nazis during the Second World War. Rota has taken full responsibility for this, saying that he didn't know anything, apparently, and, quote, became aware of more information, unquote, which, you know, had been kicking around in the ether since, like, 1943. Rota then also extended his apologies to Jews in Canada and around the world. One would think a similar extension should be made to other victims of Nazism, too. Jews, of course, but also disabled people, queer people, socialists, trained unionists, and especially right now, trans people. Rota, again, shows his tenuous grasp of history. Sarah Ritchie from the Canadian Press writes this about Rota's apology. Quote, the statement does not make clear what Rota is apologizing for, and it does not name Hunka or give any details about what information Rota learned about him since Friday, unquote. The opposition parties have made comments too, as their members were just as enthusiastic about supporting a member of the SS. Pierre Polyever laid the blame at the feet of Trudeau, as if they wouldn't have had any problem with this had no one said anything. And the NDP's comment makes it clear that they too have no grasp of who the Nazis were and what they thought about a left-wing social democratic party. 
In the decades that followed World War II, Canada admitted a lot of former Nazis. They were particularly helpful in smashing labor organizing. There are several monuments to members of the Waffen SS Galicia Division in Canada, for example. There are several monuments to members of the Waffen SS Galicia Division, the same that Hunka was a member of, in Canada. Brian Mulrooney ordered a commission into whether or not Canada became, quote, a haven for war criminals, unquote, and it found that there were 600 former members of the Waffen SS Galicia Division living in Canada. The Canadian press story does not mention how many other former Nazis there were who were members of other divisions. And finally, to Kosovo and Serbia, where decades of European-led mediation between the two countries are in virtual collapse. Serbia refuses to recognize Kosovo as independent, something that was declared in 2008 by a plan that was stick-handled by the UN. On Sunday, The Guardian reports that quote-unquote unidentified militants killed a police officer in North Kosovo. Police killed three people in the exchange. The Prime Minister of Kosovo has said that talks have become so one-sided that he thinks that the whole process needs to be scrapped. A meeting between Kosovoan President Albim Kurti and Serbian President Aleksandr Vicic was a quote-unquote debacle, and Kurti has said that he has lost faith in the EU envoy Miroslav Lashak as being neutral. At issue was that Kurti said that Lashak has failed to give him the Serbian negotiating position, a document that had been created more than six months ago. Kurti has also said that the Serbian president quote-unquote, hurls insults at him and no one makes any effort to stop him. In particular, he says that Vucic uses ethnic slurs about Albanians, something that doesn't sit well with Kurti, considering that at least 10,000 people were killed by Serbian forces in the late 1990s, most of them who are ethnic Albanians. Both sides have broken parts of the agreements. The Serbs have opposed Kosovo's application to membership in international bodies, which they are not supposed to do under one agreement, and Kosovo has failed to set up an association of municipalities where Serbs form the majority of the population. Behind all of this is the role that the European Union and the United States has and can play in brokering relations between the two countries and where Russia fits in with all of it. The Serbian prime minister has been moving closer to Putin, while Kurti thinks that having Ukraine recognize Kosovo will reignite support from the West and convince the few holdout countries who have never recognized Kosovo's independence to recognize Kosovo's independence. Those are your headlines for Monday, September 25th. I'm Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandynora.com, at the Real News Network podcast feed, and wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful start to your week.